0: December 7th, 1941, a date which will live in infamy. It's history. It's one small step for man, one giant leap for mankind. The events. <laughs> have Not quite to the mood, the word goes oh. the Humanity from this time and place. The figure. I take pride in the words. Ish bin ein Bialina. <laughs> Mr. Gorbachev teared down this wall. The drama. Six Marine 6. Two had a major explosion and what appears to be a complete collapse the area. I welcome this kind of examination because people have got to know deep whether or not their president's a crook. Well, I'm not a crook. If we dig deep in our history and our doctrine, and remember that we are not descended from fearful men. It's hardcore history. was doing a little prep work for a show I hope to put together down the road. I want to do a program on the greatest armies of all time. Maybe like a top ten list or something. But this requires that you actually sit down at some point and start working on the list. So the other day I had sat down and um, was just on a piece of paper starting to write down potential nominees for inclusion into the running of the greatest armies of all time. And I got a pretty healthy list put together just from memory. And then I started opening up some of my history books and military manuals and adding some of the lesser known armies, maybe from more unusual or out-of-the-way places, start to get a pretty good list together. And I'm staring at this list, starting to realize how many great armies there are throughout history and how hard it's going to be to whittle them down to any sort of manageable number. But something jumped out at me right away. A pattern, if you will, looking at this list. And the pattern was that for the vast majority of time, judging by my list, you could see that the area that we used to call the Near East, that would be like the Eastern Mediterranean, Egypt, Syria, the Levant, Turkey... All the way to Western India, the steppes up in the north where Uzbekistan and Kazakhstan and Turkmenistan and those places are, all the way to Mongolia, and then down to the Indian Ocean by the tip of Saudi Arabia. That whole region, which you could call the Near East, and that is what they used to call it, that area was a. I mean, that was where military history was born and where it's been a dominant force in world history up until recent times. You go to the store, you buy yourself a modern book on military history uh, that starts off at the beginning, and it will start off in Sumeria, which is in Iraq, modern-day Iraq. In fact, one of the reasons that Iraq is called Iraq, probably, there's some dispute about this, is because one of the Sumerian cities was named Uruk. It's pretty close to Iraq, and that's how that happened. In other words, talk about going back to your roots. Got a city called Uruk in 3000 BC, and that's the name of your modern country. Well, that was also, as far as we can tell, the birthplace of warfare as we understand it, the modern organized variety. And from about that time, 3500, 3000 BC, until about the American Revolution, that area of the world regularly produced Armies that would, well, at least make one of the final cuts on the greatest armies of all time list, contributed lots and lots of armies to the list of the best of all time. Last 200 years, really nothing. Now think about that. Does that make sense at all? That in six or seven thousand years of recorded history, this region would produce some of the greatest armies of all time regularly and then just stop 200, 250 years ago. So that was the first pattern that jumped out at me when I was looking at my little list. And then the obvious question that I'm asking you occurred to me, which was, what what would account for the loss of dominance in this field? And understand, it doesn't mean that the Near Eastern armies were the greatest in the world, because there were times when their enemy was the Roman Empire, and it's tough to do better than the Roman Empire, even though they had their defeats in the Middle East. My point being that if you were going to name at any time in history, up until about 300 years ago, the greatest armies of any age, there would be some Near Eastern ones on the list. So what changed? Well, as I said, if you looked at the list of these great Near Eastern armies throughout history, you'd notice another pattern. And that pattern was, what was it that these armies all had in common? Well, they all had in common the fact that when push came to shove, at the end of the day, those armies all relied on their cavalry, most of all. They were cavalry armies. Now, that doesn't mean they were totally cavalry armies. A lot of their armies had a lot of infantry. But what it meant was that the commanders expected that the heavy lifting would be done by the cavalry. And the enemies of those armies feared the cavalry most of all. And, you know, cavalry is a very interesting military arm, especially in ancient times, especially before there was a lot of artillery. Because if you have cavalry and the enemy really doesn't have anywhere near as much cavalry, you can sort of dictate when battles happen. You want to fight? You can fight. You don't want to fight? You can usually refuse contact. And that's an amazing amount of power. It also suits very well the nature of Eastern fighting. And this is another thing. See, the West and the East and when you say the West you mean mostly like Europe those areas have always had a almost different mindset about warfare throughout history. And there have been historians who have done a very good job of explaining the differences between the mindset of Westerners and Easterners when it comes to fighting. These days, Victor Davis Hansen is probably the historian that talks about it the most, but you can go back to some of the real greats of the old days, like Hans Delbruck, and he's very good at explaining the differences, too, between the Eastern way of fighting and the Western way of fighting. The East can be compared, if you want to use a boxing analogy, to boxers, whereas we in the West are punchers. Let me explain that a little bit more. In boxing, there are two main breakdowns of styles. One is punchers, and punchers are easy to understand. Punchers are like Mike Tyson. Punchers are people that want to go into the middle of the ring, meet the other guy there, exchange a bunch of big, hard slugs, and in five minutes, one person's going to have their hand raised. It's going to be very decisive, and it's going to be over. Meet on the field of battle, settle it, mano a mano. And that attitude goes back to Celtic times. Barbarian German times, probably human prehistory in the West. I mean, the age-old style was to get out there in front of the army, step in front of the whole army, look at the enemy, shake your sword at them, proclaim your lineage and who you were descended from and who you killed previously, and then challenge anyone else in the army across from you if they have the guts to come over and fight you. It's amazing how those kind of cultural things can eventually be transmitted to whole armies. Because that's how the West fights. Whether it's the Greeks with their phalanxes looking for a nice level place and issuing an invitation to the other Greek city-state to meet you there and settle it like men. Or the Alexandrian-era phalanxes with men holding... 18 to 21 foot pikes, same thing, meet you on the field of battle, be there. Roman legionaries with sword and armor and shield in hand, same thing, meet you on the field of battle, kick your butt when we get there. The East is different. And not because their people are less courageous or less strong physically or anything. They just have a different style. I compare them to the boxers. They're more like Muhammad Ali, right, instead of Mike Tyson. Instead of trying to duke it out in the middle of the ring and maybe get knocked out, they box. They flick their jab at you and sting you with it. They frustrate you. They wear you down. They tire you out. You throw big shots and miss. They pop you with the jab and move, right? And eventually, when you've worn yourself out, they come in for the kill. That's Eastern warfare to a T. And cavalry lends itself to that. The fact that you can decide if you want to fight or not fight now. You can control the initiative. And the cavalry in the east came with another weapon that was so well suited to that style of warfare. They came with bows. And arrows. And you put one of these near eastern guys on a horse with a bow. And it became a formidable weapon system. A weapon system that the West never got a good handle on dealing with. And as you went closer and closer to the steppe, that area around southern and eastern Russia, northern China, Mongolia, all that area, the horse archers became better and better. And more native, and by that I mean people who grew up in the saddle, slept in the saddle. We in America like to point out the proficiency of some of our Native American tribes as horsemen. The Sioux, the Comanche, the Cheyenne, good horsemen. And I've seen them ride in demonstrations, modern demonstrations. And remember, the modern Comanche are not as good of horsemen as their ancestors were, but they're very impressive still. Well, I've also seen demonstrations of the modern Mongolians... On horseback, And they're amazing. They're even more amazing than the Native Americans. And they aren't as good as their ancestors. Now imagine facing a whole army of people like Mongols or Huns or Scythians or Sarmatians. They're a very difficult weapon system for anyone to have to deal with. And the West particularly was at a disadvantage because in the West, missile fire, whether it was slings or bows or javelins, was not something that was used a lot. When the great Imperial Roman army decided to fight it out with the Parthian Empire, which was in control of what is modern Iran now, they met near Baghdad, where Baghdad is now, and they they hashed it out with a battle. But it wasn't the kind of battle the Romans wanted to fight. The Romans went in there with a lot of infantry, armed with things like swords and big old shields, and had to contend with a bunch of guys riding around on horses with arrows who would not stand still to fight and would simply pepper them all day long in very hot temperatures and any units that would charge after them, they would run away from and then eventually cut off as soon as that small detachment was away from the main body. It was frustrating. It was like watching Mike Tyson lose to Buster Douglas in Tokyo. Mike Tyson was being outboxed and you could see the Romans were the superior army if they could ever come to grips. But coming to grips was the whole key. The Easterners would not come to grips, and that's how they won. And I can hear a lot of people saying right now, Well, you know, Dan, if this was such a superior weapon system, why didn't the Westerners just adopt it too? Why didn't they just hand a bow to somebody, put them on a horse, and say, Go do what those guys do? Because it's not as simple as all that. We're so used today... ...to taking somebody and throwing them into basic training... ...and three or six months later having them come out a soldier. But some of the weapons systems in the ancient world... ...and the old world, because it's not all ancient. Old world would just be better. Were part of lifestyles. You could not make a Comanche by giving a U.S. cavalryman a bow... ...and six months training. You could not duplicate what somebody did by being born in the saddle the stories of the step archers who could shoot birds in flight out of the sky, that's not something you can do with four or five or six months training. You've got to live it. You've got to be a Comanche to fight like a Comanche. And so the West never was able to develop their own real core of people that could duplicate what their enemies could do. Now, their advantage, what protected the West from the Easterners encroaching too much on their territory, was the same thing that kept the West, in a very strange way, from becoming big cavalry armies themselves. Europe in those days, any time before pre-modern times, had a lot of forest, not a lot of grazing land, not a lot of pasture land. They could support a small elite of cavalrymen, like a bunch of mounted knights. They couldn't support armies of horsemen, the way the Mongols could support armies of horsemen, including, you know, every guy carrying three or four remounts with him. And that's supposedly what hurt the Mongols and the Huns when they got into Europe, was once you got past the hungry plain, there was no good area to feed your horses, no big wide-open expanses of grasslands to graze on. So the very thing that made it practical in Europe to line up in big blocks of infantry is the same thing that protected them from being overrun by the armies from the steppe or from the Near East. But what ended up happening that keeps the Near East from still, every now and then, getting an army on the best army of all time list? Why isn't there a Near Eastern candidate for that in the past two or three hundred years? What happened? What changed? Well, cavalry went away. And when cavalry went away, the signature style of warfare that had existed in the Near East since about 1500 B.C. went away, too. And the East has yet to find something to take its place. And what happened to cavalry? It's worth looking and saying, well, okay, if man couldn't figure out a way to deal with the Eastern tactics and the horse archers and the Turks and... Everyone in that region, if they couldn't figure out a way to deal with the cavalry, the eastern cavalry, for thousands of years, why did they all of a sudden become able to cope with it? What changed? Well, it was guns, ladies and gentlemen. Guns changed the whole relationship between the east and the west. Guns are what destroyed cavalry as any kind of an effective fighting force. And when cavalry was destroyed, the East lost its balancing force against the West. I wouldn't call it its dominance because there was a rough equilibrium between the two. But once the East lost their dominant part of their armies, as I said, the most effective part of all those Near Eastern armies that made the top armies of all time list that I have... They were all armies that you expected the cavalry to carry the day for you. Once you got rid of the cavalry, you were left with the part of the army that wasn't that effective to begin with. Whereas the West was still Mike Tyson, they were still tough. They were still going to come and meet you on the field of battle, and they were going to bop you in the nose if you couldn't get away. So what about the guns made all the difference? Because those of you with any historical background know that the early guns were not very good matter of fact, when guns first showed up, they were inferior to the missile weapons that were already in use. Not as good as an English longbow. Not as good as a French crossbow. So, why did they end up becoming the dominant weapon system instead of a bow or a crossbow? It's one of the great mysteries of history, by the way. How the English army of about, oh, I don't know, 1580, 1575, which is Renaissance times... But they still used the longbow. Yet if they had fought the French, the French on the continent were using gunmen. Would have been a very interesting battle, wouldn't it? Longbowmen against gunmen in an era where the longbow was absolutely the superior weapon system if you were judging, you know, reload time or accuracy or range. The guns made a very satisfying noise, though, that can't be discounted. The morale factor was always in play. But... It wasn't so much that guns were such a dominant weapon system by themselves that changed the relationship between the Easterners and the Westerners. It was the fact that, one, you could just hand a gun to someone and give him a couple days training, and he was actually useful in the field with it. Line him up with 100 or 200 of his best friends in a nice compact body of men. Throw in some guys to hold spears just to make sure you don't get charged by cavalry. And you could have an effective fighting force in the amount of time or less than the amount of time than it takes to make one now. Whereas if you had to turn a bunch of farmers into archers, it would have taken you a lot longer. If for no other reason than you have to build up the arm strength to continually pull the bow back as far as it has to go to be effective. You can't train those archers as fast as you can train those gunmen. But again, even had you replaced the archers that the medieval armies had in their army with gunmen, it would have made no difference. This is the thing that is not often commented upon, but that was the key factor in why the western armies all of a sudden gained dominance over the east. It wasn't the weapon itself, the missile weapon that they chose, it was the fact that they chose a lot more of them than they traditionally did. For example, that Roman army that was defeated at Kerhe against the Parthians near Babylon probably had... About 5% of its total force armed with long-range missile weapons. Give or take 5%, but that would be a standard number in an imperial Roman army, and that was a pretty standard number for the West. Go back to Alexander's Macedonians. Probably a similar number of long-range missile men there, too. What the West did was they didn't just replace their bows with guns. They started to arm a lot more of their infantry with guns than ever had bows. In other words, it would be the same thing if the Romans who were going to meet the Parthians at Carhe decided to arm 50% of their legionaries with bows. By the way, the Roman bow in that era probably better than the very early guns. That would have made a huge difference because then all of a sudden an army that was no danger to the Parthian horse archers, because it couldn't catch them, and it couldn't hurt them without catching them, could all of a sudden hurt them without catching them the Parthians rode up to the Roman legionaries close enough to shoot their bow, they would get shot at. That was something the Romans couldn't do at Carrhae. But had the, when those horse archers, when those Easterners rode up to blocks of infantry that were still very formidable, you wouldn't have wanted to melee with them. You wouldn't have wanted to come to hand-to-hand contact with any Western armies if you were an Eastern army, you would have wanted to shoot them and run and wait till they disintegrated. But you couldn't do that anymore when they could shoot back just as easily and you still couldn't come to grips with them. It allowed the puncher, to get back to our analogy of Mike Tyson, it allowed the Mike Tyson to all of a sudden reach out and hit the Muhammad Ali. And that changed the equation entirely. When Napoleon Bonaparte in the late 1700s decided to invade Egypt, right around the time our founding fathers were fixing up the constitution. A little later. Um, He was met by large forces of Egyptian cavalry. And they mowed them down. The French wielding muskets simply mowed them down. Not just that. By then you also had artillery shooting, which is like you know, guns on steroids, obviously. And The weapon systems had proven so dominant that the East was unable to respond. And I know what a lot of people are thinking. They're thinking, well, why was it such a big problem? Why couldn't the East just adopt guns also and thereby keep up with the Western technological developments? Well, because... Those guns, as I said, were not really so important because they were some new kind of weapon. They were important because the Europeans were using so many more missile weapons than they traditionally did. If you gave a gun to an Egyptian cavalry horse archer, he was not that much different than he was before. I would imagine, depending on the firearm type, maybe even less effective than if he was wielding an actual bow. But you give it to a Westerner and you were giving somebody a missile weapon who didn't have one previously. You give it to the Easterner and you're just replacing one missile weapon with another. It didn't radically change the tactical situation. But once the West stayed able to be so dominant in hand-to-hand combat, but acquired the ability to exchange missile fire, the East was broken. You can even look, too, because in... The 12 and 1300s, the Mongols, in the most amazing campaigns, literally came close to destroying the West. They defeated huge armies that mobilized against them on several fronts of Europeans, and they did it with ease. And this was the last gasp of the old system, because only 250 or 300 years later, an army like the Mongols would have run into Firearms. And the Russians, who had never been able to make any headway south or east of their little European enclaves because of those horse archer peoples that they couldn't deal with tactically, began to make lots of progress. I mean, most of Ivan the Terrible's reign and a bunch of the czars around him is concerned with taking territory from these horse archer peoples because we finally had the tactical means to deal with them, and it was gunmen. And these guns, as I said, not very... Accurate, slow rate of fire but if you armed enough people with them stuck them together in a large square mass of men and they all fired at one time they could put a lot of lead into the air make it really unsafe if you were on a horse in front of them and that's what happened the guns allowed the puncher to catch the boxer and the relationship has yet to change And I often wonder why it is that the East couldn't just imitate the West and say, well, obviously this is how it's going in the world. That whole horse archer thing, that whole skirmish thing, what we've done forever is not going to work anymore. Let's just imitate the West because that's what they've done. They buy tanks. They buy planes. They train their people at the same military academies. Why aren't the armies of the East adjusting better and putting out their own Roman legionaries, for lack of a better example? Well, this gets to me to the most interesting part of the whole equation and admittedly the part where we're reaching the most. So I hope you grant me a little leeway on this. I feel a little like Art Bell even bringing it up. But there is a long line of military historians who believe that warfare is intimately tied to the culture and that the culture imposes restraints on what a military can do and ways that it can develop. For example, why didn't Europe arm and have better infantry during the era when the Mounted Knight was so big in Western Europe. Well, the reasons are cultural. The nobility who made up the Mounted Knights did not want the people armed because that was a potential for revolution. It was part about keeping the population down. It wasn't the best military idea. The West probably would have been more powerful had all the infantry and the peasants been armed and trained and as the Roman legions had been generations before but it wasn't in the best interest of the nobility culturally and socially so it didn't happen we have to remember that those sorts of constraints are around otherwise sometimes certain things don't make sense well why didn't the Easterners just develop the kind of armies that the Westerners did when the Westerners were wearing powdered wigs and tricorn hats and marching shoulder to shoulder like the British like the Americans in the American Revolution why didn't the East do that and I would make the case that there's something about the East that doesn't let them. That there's something about the nature of the way the West approaches war versus the way the na- the nature of the way the East approaches war that has never allowed them to simply copy us and have it work well. And it's funny because if you really want to, as I said, start to play with this idea a little bit, you can look at the only army on my list of... Possible greatest armies of all time from that area in the last 300 years. You know what it is? It's the Ottoman Turk army. The one that darn near took Vienna when it was in the high watermark of its existence right before our American revolution. Right around that time period. And this Turk army was very interesting because it was the only one that tried to get out there and use western style troops in some respects. It was a hybrid army, a a combination of western and eastern style elements. It had these troops called the Janissaries, who tried to fight like western gunmen as infantry, but it also had the wonderful Turkish and eastern cavalry as well. It was a blend of the two of them. But the Janissaries, who were world renowned as being fantastic soldiers, very good infantrymen, very good gunmen, it should be noted were not easterners. People don't generally know this. The Janissaries were all slave soldiers, born to Christians from the West, sometimes from the old Byzantine territories, but they actually employed Westerners, but only in a genetic sense, because these slave soldiers were raised in Islamic society. If it was a question of pure culture, then you would think they would grow up to want to box like Muhammad Ali as opposed to punch like Mike Tyson Westerners in DNA but Muhammad Ali in culture and training but that's not how it worked it's almost as though somehow the desire and the capability to seek a decision mano a mano on the field of battle this afternoon face to face punch you in the eye that is almost in the Westerners DNA going back to Celtic times when you took that sword out and yelled to the other army your ancient lineage and dared anybody brave enough to come out and fight you. Could that be in our DNA? How many generations of that kind of stuff do you have to have before it is part of your makeup at birth? And how much of a part of the Comanche lifestyle riding that horse every day till you're bow-legged 15, 16 generations in a row? Which probably wasn't the case in the Comanche's, uh, Situation, because they got horses rather late. So let's talk about the Huns or the Mongols or the Sarmatians or the Scythians instead. Generation after generation after generation of after generation of bow-legged people who lived in the saddle and slept and ate in the saddle. How many human existences do you have to go through of that before it's part of your DNA or part of your evolution? I guess what I'm saying, folks, is The human mind says, if you can't win doing things the way you're doing militarily, copy the people who are beating you. So why isn't that just what everybody does all the time? And if they do it all the time, why did not it work all the time? Because, you know, when people were losing to the Romans left and right, uh, Antiochus the Great, Mithridates of Pontus, those people um, tried to copy the Roman legionaries. They would go get some upset Roman centurions who were like sergeants, and they would say, "'Train me, Roman legionaries. I'll buy the same shields. I'll buy the same armor. I'll buy the same weapons. You guys can command them just like you commanded them in Rome, and we'll build ourselves some Roman legionaries.'" You know what? They never fought like Roman legionaries. There was something about needing to be from the West to fight like the West, and these Easterners were unable at the time to make that situation work for them. Well, all the armies in the Near East now have tanks. They have jet fighters bought from the West. Their officers go to military training school in the West. Why aren't those armies simply the equals of the West? What's the difference? Well, I would make the case that the difference is that the Easterners still feel... In their heart of hearts, the need to box. And the Westerners are still the Mike Tyson armies. And so, we're, if you're trying to create a Jordanian army or an Egyptian army or a Syrian army that can compete with a French army or a German army or a Russian army... They need to be able to fight with that army the way that the people who designed that army to fit in with their tendencies or their DNA or whatever meant it to be. And I have a feeling that in their heart of hearts, the Easterners want to do what they've been doing since 8,000 B.C. and maybe even before. They want a box, and they're living in an era where people punch. If you don't believe me, look how poorly the Easterners did when facing, say, Israel, which is really a Western-style army with Western-style people, in a great many wars, the Israelis have beaten the odds to come out on top. Yet, when you get the Easterners in a situation where they're allowed to fight in their traditional style... And understand, in the old days, those great expanses of land in the east that work against the eastern style of warfare now, those wide open spaces are just wide open to attacks by our aircraft. In ancient times, that's what worked for your horse archers. Having wide open spaces was exactly what you needed for that style of warfare to work. You change the terrain and make it possible for the people who like to skirmish to skirmish again the way the Vietnamese did in the foliage of Vietnam, the way that the insurgents in Iraq now are utilizing the built-up urban areas to offset some of the Mike Tyson-type punching abilities of our forces, it shows that those people have lost none of their ability to skirmish well, to fight the kinds of wars that they fight well. And so, going back to that greatest armies of all time list I would say that you're going to see eastern armies on that short list of possible greatest armies of all time again as soon as the weapons system that does what guns did for the west shows up allowing the peoples of the east to once again fight their style of warfare to box instead of punch